Over the course of the last 75 years, there have been moments that changed each of our lives today. When Dr. Martin Luther King shared his dream. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. When Rosa Parks said no. He asked me if I was going to stand up, I told him, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you don't have, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have you arrest, call the policeman and have you arrested. I said, you may do that. When 20 million people participated in the first Earth Day. This is a CBS News special. Earth Day, a question of survival with CBS News correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day, a day dedicated to enlisting all the citizens of a bountiful country in the common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty. When Steve Jobs introduced us to a new device, one you have today, one you're probably using right now. An iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator, an iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. Today on Stories and Strategies, we sometimes describe these as moments in time, but really, they were the beginnings of course shifts in global society momentum. They were the greatest of PR campaigns, but which one is the best of them all? My name is Doug Downs. My guest this week is Anne Gregory. It is great to have you back, Anne. I think third time on the podcast. Well, it's great to be back, and I'm a bit like a bad habit to keep coming back. Oh, you are welcome back anytime. I love these episodes. You're joining today again from Huddersfield in the UK, which it as I it's in West Yorkshire, but it's kind of sandwiched geographically between Manchester, Leeds, and Sheffield. How are things there? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, you'll probably know if you're a football fan that Manchester City are up for the triple this next weekend. So things are buzzing around here, Doug. And being, you know, between Leeds and Sheffield as well, you can just change your allegiances any which way you want. Depends on who's winning at the time, right? I've always got a winner somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't possibly read all your credentials. So this is is a very abbreviated form. You're a board member with the Chartered Institute of Public Relations, CIPR, Professor Emeritus of Corporate Communication at the University of Huddersfield. You teach executive education programs for the UK government. You're an adjunct professor at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology in Australia, the London School of Public Relations in Jakarta, Indonesia, a visiting professor at the University of Navarra in both Spain and Johannesburg, and the University of Technology in Australia. And you directed the Global Capability Framework, 
which has been adopted by professional associations worldwide. And we did an episode on that a couple of years ago. So always great to have you back. And I, I know you, you detest the listing of all the credentials thing. It's something you're uncomfortable with, aren't you? Yeah, because Doug, it, it can sometimes be a separate. I'm only an ordinary Joe-S, okay? I happen to have uh, stumbled across some great things and had some great opportunities in life, but I don't want all those handles to be a barrier between me and uh, and the folks on, on the podcast and, and yourself because I'm like you, and sometimes it, it creates a bit of a barrier. I hear you, and you're great at responding. I, your Twitter address is listed in the show notes. You're very, you're great at responding to people. So, and this idea to capture the greatest PR campaign of them all, you know, a bit ambitious. Uh, but what sparked this? And the call to action here is that people listening can vote on what they think is the best campaign of them all. Yeah, so it's the Charters Institute's 75th anniversary this year, Doug. And our president this year, Steve Shepperson-Smith, um, his theme for the year is the societal impact of public relations. We often talk about the impact that uh, public relations has for organisations, but this is about society. So it seems that it would be a good idea to look at the societal impact of public relations across the decades. So what we've done is to get a group of fantastically expert judges to take a decade each and to pick their campaign for that decade that uh, that just changed the world. And now we're going to put it to a public vote. I mean, everyone's a winner. Absolutely. I mean, these are all fantastic campaigns. At least in a way, I suppose it seems a bit, you know, a bit naff to say, well, let's pick one. But there are some of these campaigns that really have changed the world. And we would like the people who listen to you, and it's a public vote, anybody can vote, to pick the campaign that they think has made the seminal difference across those seven and a half decades that the Public Relations Institute here in the UK has been in existence. Yeah, the joy is in the exercise, not so much the result here, but the result is fun. That's right. So let's go through them one by one, uh, one for each decade. And you went back to 1948 through 1959 for the first one. Rosa Parks and the Montgomery Bus Boycott. We've all heard about the moment. We always hear about the moment. Tell us about the campaign. Okay, well, we need to thank uh, John Harrington, who's the editor of PR Week, for selecting this one. Uh, The decade that he looked at was at the late, uh, well, from 1948 to 1959. And uh, he picked this moment, which was really one of the kickoff moments for the U.S. civil rights campaign in the U.S. And it's become really a blueprint for modern protest movements in that country and across the world as well. So the campaign was about more than PR, as we know, it wanted to change legislation. But uh, there were many ingredients to this. At its heart, though, was a simple and single gesture. Rosa Parks refusing to give up her bus seat for a white person. And it sort of symbolised the injustice that was going on in, in the U.S., um, and started a, a civil rights movement that is still continuing today, actually, Doug. Um And so we sort of think, well, that was also an impromptu action by Rosa Parks, but it wasn't. It's interesting that some background to this uh, bus boycott. Um, And there's an organization in Montgomery, Alabama, where Rosa Parks lived called the 
National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, the NAACP. And they've been thinking about how they could mount a protest about the, uh, the, the segregation on buses for some time. And they'd actually thought that they might back a campaign fronted by a young woman called Claudette Colvin. And she was the first person to refuse to give up her seat on the Alabama buses. But the president of the association found out that Claudette, unfortunately, was pregnant. She was 15 and she was single. So they axed her being the front to that campaign. Uh, Rosa Parks came along. And the reason that they they partly axed it as well was, uh, Doug, um, they wanted the church to get behind this. And they thought that poor old... Claudette would not be the right person to front this campaign. You know, she's single, pregnant. Interesting. So Rosa did actually spontaneously do this act of refusing to give up her seat. Uh, But the president then of the association went to her and said, can we use this to spark this campaign that we had in mind? And she agreed. And and the, the purpose of the campaign was to really put financial pressure on decision makers in Montgomery so that they will change their ways and allow uh, black people to, uh, to not be segregated on buses anymore. And the challenge was for um, the, the the black people of Montgomery to be able to participate in the campaign because they were very, de- very, very dependent on the buses. So they had to convince black business owners and taxi drivers to provide alternative services to make this boycott possible. And they did that through contact and uh, all sorts of, of, of local, very local one-to-one campaigning. Um, but they also brought in a strong communicator. You might have heard about him. He's a guy called Martin Luther King. And uh, he also began his civil rights work partly through this this campaign. So what happened, 20,000 black passengers boycotted the buses in Montgomery, Alabama for 381 days. Wow. Yeah. And and the upshot was that uh, the campaign was a success. And in 1956, the Supreme Court struck down Alabama's segregation bus laws and this is really the power of a single act and a symbolic act, Doug. I think it's an amazing campaign. Really grateful to John for bringing this to our attention. And and Dr. King is a big part of the, the second campaign in, in your program, the 1960s civil rights movement in the U.S. Yeah, so this is almost like a, a, a continuum here because yeah. the next campaign was picked by Alex Aiken, who's the executive director of uh, of co- uh, government communications here in the UK. Uh, wh- what can we say about campaign? Uh, I guess, you know, the 1963 speech of I Have a Dream is one of those iconic speeches that everybody remembers. And one of the iconic speeches of the 20th century, really. And the 1960s were a time of change. The civil rights movement was making some progress. And uh, and really, the activities in the 1960s generated some huge change. So there was a civil rights movement uh, act, which was enacted in, in 1964, voting rights in 1965, fair housing in 19. 68. So this was a, 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 a decade when the shift 
happened. And that was due really to the immense bravery of people like Martin Luther King uh, and his colleagues who left a, a legacy for future generations to follow. Uh, and it came after things like Rosa Parks and uh, the, the Freedom Rise and the Birmingham campaigns. Uh, and, and, and I love what Martin Luther say, uh, King said about uh, public relations himself, to quote him. Public relations is a very necessary part of any protest of civil disobedience. And so, you know, it, it was amazing, really. The focus was mainly on mass protest movements o over that decade, the galvanizing public respon uh, response and support. Um, and, and, and the psychology is so smart, Doug. Um, and they knew that these mass peaceful campaigns would generate a violent reaction from the police. They just knew that. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they were then waiting for the response to that violence. And they picked locations and they picked events which were going to stimulate a lot of media in interest and be able to generate opportunities for them to make their case. Um, and they, they wanted to put pressure on the private sector to you know, stop dis dis discrimination through other campaigns like Operation Breadbasket. But these marches really were at the heart of it. Um, and they knew that if they indulged in any violence, it would stimulate opposition and make legislation really quite difficult. So these were rigidly disciplined campaigns, Doug. Even the placement of people, what they could take to the marches, was all strictly monitored. Uh, and the, these, the, these sort of marches in these iconic public places were the perfect setting, really, for speeches made by the likes of Martin Luther King to engage with these large crowds. Um, and with the media being present, you know, what an opportunity, and they took it fully. Those first two are absolutely brilliant and changed society that we know today. Absolutely, yeah. Campaign number three from the 70s, the 1970s Earth Day, the first Earth Day. Yeah, so our judge here was Solitaire Townsend, who's the co-founder of Futura, which is a think tank about the, the future and uh, environmentalism is right at the heart of some of the work that they do. So the originator of the original and the first Earth Day was a guy called Gaylord Nelson, who was an American senator, and he delivered a series of lectures um, to raise public consciousness. He was very personally really affected by the Vietnam protests, but he knew that they had to do something different here. So rather than sort of campaigning in, in the, the vogue of the American protests against Vietnam, he wanted to distinguish Earth Day really as an educational opportunity. And he engaged very much with uh, educational institutes. He wanted it to be non-partisan, uh, non-radical, um, and he wanted to capture a really broad base of support. So again, really cute. You know, you don't do that by always being in people's faces. So this was almost a quiet campaign, Doug, but it was profound. You know, looking at all the institutions in the states that have influence, like education, and really cleverly getting um, a sort of collaboration across the political divide. We know U.S. politics is 
pretty bipartisan. Mm -hmm. But uh, the co-chair of of this uh, Earth Day was a Republican senator. So we got both sides to support this. Um, And uh, he did use a level of provocation, provocative slogans like the beginning of the end of pollution and really um, garish T-shirts and things like that. But he encouraged participation. He got stickers and uh, and, and sort of buttons that people could put in their lapels and really stimulated a broad base of of support and trying to um, use also some of the environmental disasters like the Santa Barbara oil spill to to strengthen the narrative that they were developing about the urgency of this. And central to the the Earth Day was this should be a grassroots campaign, bottom up. This was not going to be led by senators. This was about you know the people recognizing an existential threat. But the result: twenty million Americans participated in more than ten thousand events across the country on that first Earth Day. That is absolutely That's great stunning. participation. Just speak yeah. really. Oh, absolutely. That's the power of the grassroots when they get stimulated, Doug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we do want a voice. Uh, the fourth campaign, the 80s. Can't think of the 80s without thinking of AIDS and what happened. Oh. So 1980s, AIDS activism is the campaign. Yeah, and we're grateful to Dan Tish, who's a Canadian, who was our judge for for the 1980s. He's a president of our Argyle Communication and a former chair of the Global Alliance. And and you're right, Doug. I mean, you and I of a certain age, uh, and we remember how big the AIDS crisis was. Um, yeah. You know, 10 million people infected. And we we forget, you know, I mean, we've just been through a pandemic. It wasn't quite a pandemic, but it was all but. And 10 million people are, are, are affected. And the stigma around being gay at that time as well, it was known as the gay disease. So this was a profound campaign to change, really, the social construction, if you like, of illness and the whole community um, and at the time was truly revolutionary. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, you have a right to health care. And it wasn't just that they were changing public attitudes, Doug. They also really activated the sort of modern approach to medicine. Um, you know, the tradition to date had been that you tried drugs of small number of people, extensive uh, testing of that, and they wanted, you know, drugs to be available to hundreds of thousands of people all at once. And they would uh, change the way that the drug testing regime was was, uh, influenced, particularly in in, in the US. And they wanted to change government policy as well as uh, the clinical trial policy at the time. Uh, And what they did was to try and get in the front uh, of of some people who's... um, Who's, who were really impactful. So civic institutions, big civic institutions, big corporations, they interrupted um, uh, annual general meetings. They closed down the Food and Drug uh, Organization, for goodness sake, Doug, you know, yeah. uh, and, and really were in the front of, of, uh, of, of picking almost iconic occasions, so which they, in effect, flash mobbed. You know, to say there is an agenda here that you have to pay attention to. 
So um, they knew that media coverage would be uh, would be almost a natural following this a really disruptive nature of the campaigning. And I remember, you know, I'm a Brit. You probably can't tell that from my accent. But you know, I re- I remember, you know, Princess Diana drinking from the cup of somebody yeah. who had AIDS and the and impact hugs, that had. Hugs, I remember that hugs. as well, sharing it hugs. It was yeah. just, oh, it was so imaginative. And, you know, they forced the FDA to approve new drugs. They forced the pharma industry to give lower prices for essential drugs. And they brought public awareness to this issue in a really stunning way. So, you know, then they proved that you, you, you can't just put difficult issues in a box. Yeah. You know, if this affects communities, then they will find a way to actually force their issue to an agenda. And and this was one of the first times a big farmer government had been confronted in such a way. Uh, an amazing campaign. Yeah. Changed absolutely. our whole attitude to and you can see almost the genesis of you know what we did in, in COVID, right back to that. With the, the vaccination, that yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I was thinking that. A uh, campaign from the 90s that was chosen, Virgin Atlantic versus British Airways, put in a simpler form, David versus Goliath at the time. Absolutely. And again, grateful to our judge, Mark Bukowski, who's uh, of uh, Bukowski PR here in the UK. It is a, it is a UK um, campaign. So you say, well, why did that change the world? Well, it's a very different campaign from the ones that we've, we've thought about uh, up to now, Doug. But this is really about mass consumerism. And we know that really in the 1990s, there was a step change in mass consumerism and the democratization of consumerism, the democratization of travel. You know, there have been attempts to democratize that and, and, and make it open to the masses before. But this was a campaign that really triggered some of that. And at the heart of this was really a dirty tricks campaign. Uh, and Virgin Atlantic had been subjected uh, by um, uh, British Airways to a vociferous opposition campaign. You know, the rich and the powerful, the traditional airline industry. Um, and what they found out when they went to court over suspected dirty tricks was that Virgin passengers had been um, poached um, because because. Um, uh, BA had actually hacked into the Virgin systems and got passenger names. Um, they'd actually been approaching Virgin staff to try and suborn them, you know. Um, and wow. Uh, yeah, it was really a historic lawsuit. Um, and they'd been sabotaging bookings by saying, you know, oh, there are all sorts of technical difficulties. You better come to BA and be safe. You know, Virgin are not reliable. Um, anyway. Branson won a huge amount of money from BA because of, for this campaign. Um, and the brilliant thing was he didn't keep it. Mm. He gave it to his staff as a Christmas bonus. Amen. All of it went to his staff as a Christmas That's bonus. great. Yeah. As a result of the work of, of, of Branson and the, the likes of British Airways, we opened up travel to the world for the ordinary man and woman. Now, you might say... And therein lies the problem. That's why we face the environmental problems that we do. But these campaigns are of their work, of their age. And this was a consumer campaign of all consumer campaigns. 
and that's why Mark has chosen it. You know, and we can't just go for all the worthy stuff. We have to say that was something that changed the world. Whether it changed it for good and bad is your opinion, but it did you, change you know, the world. And another one's the campaign from the 2000s and the launch of the iPhone and Steve Jobs. And I mean, if we're all being truthful, most of us are on, if not an iPhone right now, as we're listening to this podcast, we're on an Android phone, right? We're on some kind of mobile yeah. device for the most yeah. part. Huge campaign. Absolutely. And uh, we've got um, uh, Preeta Kamel Ghani to thank for this. Uh, Preeta is actually based in Indonesia. Um, and she's the founder and chief executive of LSPR Communication and the Business Institute. And um, she picked this one uh, because this is it's another consumer product, but it really has changed society. You know, our, our very relationship with technology was changed through this, wasn't it, Doug? Uh, and mm -hmm. portable technology is now an integral part of, of the way that we live our lives. Um, and it had a significant cultural impact, not just on, on, on technology, but right down to the roots of the way that we look at ourselves in the world now and how we view the world. It's through one of these, uh, these devices. Um, so uh, it was a triumph for Apple, uh, marked the turning point really in the mobile phone industry. Um, I don't know if you remember a phone called Nokia. Nokia, yes, yes. <laughs> Nokia, yeah, been absolutely dominant right up to the mid-2000s. And Forbes, it was, who said, who could ever challenge Nokia's one billion customers? And along came Steve Jobs. <laughs> and how that, how that spread out, you know, so from the podcast industry perspective, podcasts, which are now booming here in 2023, that may not have happened if not for the mobile phones. It's, it's a direct result of us being more mobile. Yeah. And the sort of intuitive nature of the technology, you know, the touch screen um, and, and, and the tactics that they use to, to launch the iPhone as well, Doug, you know, sort of like a teaser Cheeky. campaign. Yeah. yeah. But also Steve Jobs himself, you know, you remember the man in black, wasn't he? Um, mm -hmm. against a black background, showing this little phone. Well, why is that so special? Uh, and then, you know, bang, it arrived. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and literally within a few years, you know, it had taken over the world. So... The, the 2010s, and now we're, we're sort of moving into the era where we, we haven't had enough distance in time to have a full appreciation of, of how this has shifted the world, but it certainly did. From the 2010s, the Paris Accord on Climate Change. Yes, so uh, Winnie Diaz uh, from WWF International has picked this one for us, and it really was a landmark agreement. So um, I, I, we've talked about uh, Earth Day, and there's been sort of momentum building, Doug, about activity on climate change, and uh, there was sort of general there's still the skeptics about but there was basically a, a, a public opinion had shifted right towards recognizing that we got a real problem here the challenge was you got to get the politicians to move because there's a lot of national invested interest you know for a bit from big uh, from big industry as well uh, which has national connections to move on this, and uh, we, we we know some of the dirty tricks that was got up to by some of the 
oil industry uh, giants to try and uh, diss the information that was coming out on climate change. Um, so COP21, 2015, was the seminal moment about political agreement on China, climate change. The talk had to stop and the political action had to start. So there was a whole sort of year's campaign before COP21 occurred, where they've got Earth Hour in March, Earth Day in April. There was a climate action network coordinating 18,000 non-governmental uh, non organizations, prompting dozens of, of events across the world. And just before COP, a huge global climate march took place on uh, on November the 29th, across the world to pro protest and to make the politicians listen to the fact that the population of the world knew there was a problem here. And, and if you remember, um, back in 2015, just before COP21, the Bataclan massacre had happened in Paris. So the, mar ma the mass uh, march in Paris had been cancelled. A brilliant PR moment when Pope Francis and Ban Ki-moon, among hundreds of others, donated 10,000 pairs of shoes in an installation representing the march that would have happened in Paris. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's just just brilliant. Key underlying thread to all of these is 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 uh, mass group participation, enabling people to uh, uh, to get involved and express their voice. So uh, really good. Yeah. The 2020s is, is is the seventh one. And how can uh, the 2020s will be captured in the imagination forever in history for COVID. The need to get vaccinated is the campaign. Yeah. So uh, Chris Hobson, who's the chief uh, strategy officer for our National Health Service England, um, uh, chose this one. Uh, to be fair to Chris, because he, uh, he he wondered if this might look a bit like self-interest, but we ha asked him to judge the period 2020 to 2023. So I think yeah. this was the standout thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's broadened this much more into, you know, the world campaign on vaccination. It's not localised it to uh, to the UK. So COVID-19, biggest public health risk um, in 100 years. Uh, successful vaccination campaigns had to be delivered at speed um, and they've been you know absolutely central to cutting the levels of death uh, and serious illness um, if you think about the scale of the challenge Doug you know every health system had to build awareness of the need for vaccination quickly they had to overcome vaccine hesitancy they had to uh, combat aggressive disinformation campaigns. They had to support their populations to come forward at the right time, in the right order, you know, depending on your age and your, your vulnerabilities. Uh, and globally, this involved a huge range of communication activity, you know, national campaigns um, to reassure people about the efficacy of vaccines and local campaigns, right down to the grassroots local campaigns, letting, letting people know exactly where they're to go to get vaccinated. And underpinning this really has been this amazing partnership between the pharmaceutical industry to develop the drugs, national health system as their staff, millions of volunteers worldwide, 
non-governmental organizations like the World Health Organization, national governments. And the stats, Doug, they just, you know, blow me away. In less than a thousand days, three, 13 billion COVID vaccine donations dose, doses have been administered globally. Mm-hmm. So 13 billion vaccine do- doses. 70% of the world's population has got at least one dose. 20 million lives have been saved. Um, I, 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 it's just stunning. And you think of the scale of this, you know, the world population, not everybody's been vaccinated. Nobody says that. But just the scale of that achievement, 70% of the world population vaccinated. And I'm mindful of a quote that one of our health um, um, communicators said in the UK, you know, as, as the pandemic was proceeding, the only thing that protected the population before vaccines was communication. And it strikes me that communications was the only way to get people vaccinated as well. So if you think about the role of communication in this pandemic, it's just been outstanding, Doug. Absolutely. When it comes to choosing, and each one of us can click on the link in the show notes and place our vote for what we think is the greatest campaign of them all. But when it comes to choosing, I mean, I love my iPhone, but when I compare my (laughs) iPhone to the importance of Rosa Parks or Dr. King, I can't compare. But that's not the point, right? When we're picking the campaign, we need to separate the campaign from perhaps the cause, so to speak. Yeah, they're all the best, isn't, aren't they? And, and it is a bit apples and pears, isn't it? What we're going to choose here, Doug. Yeah. Um, I, I guess what I'd say is maybe we reverse that question and we say, well, what would have happened if any of those campaigns hadn't have taken place? You know, they all changed the world in very different ways. A more, more important thing to ask yourself is... Um, Think the way they shape society. Now, you might not be a big fan of consumerism, but that's the society we live in. So these were all huge campaigns. Or or a big fan of vaccinations, maybe, because that's still controversial. But the point is there are uh, hundreds of millions who want the vaccinations and they were accessible. That's the point. So what's the most powerful shaper of society out of all these campaigns? Well, that's the question. What shapes society more? Not did I do I like it the most? And you are welcome on this podcast anytime. I love spending time with you. So I hope we chat soon again. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Doug. And uh, please get out uh, and vote, folks. And, uh, you know, the link's there. And uh, please this is, such, this is so great. This is such a celebration of our profession. So get down, get voting. Yep. Pick the top one of the seven. The link is in the show notes. You can, if you like, you can also send a message to my guest, Anne Gregory. Her email is in the show notes and her handle, her Twitter handle is also there. She's very responsive. Uh, and thanks to CIPR for all its great work here too. 
Uh, a different note to end this episode is our little podcast has grown globally. It's amazing to see all the different locations where people are listening. Each episode um, going forward, I'm going to name a location where I can see from our analytics that not just a small number, but we have a sizable group of people listening. And if you happen to live there, send me an email and we're going to send you a small gift just to thank you for listening. So this week, by the way, in Huddersfield, we, we have a fairly sizable group of people listening. So I know it's not just you, Anne. I know it's bigger than that. So um, for what role you've played, I appreciate that. It's a good little town, Doug. Uh, there's a lot going on here. So um, I'm not surprised. Well, And they're plugged yes. in. Yes. They're plugged in. I appreciate that. So this week, if you are listening in Magnolia, Texas, little Texas town, as I can see, of, of just under 3,000 people, and we have a really good listenership that's based there send me an email let's say by the end of august 2023 i can't make it go on forever so if you live in magnolia texas you're listening to this this episode send me an email doug at storiesandstrategies.ca we're going to send you a small gift hoping that you will mention to a friend of yours that you enjoy this podcast thanks for listening